This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, wondering how to secure or raise some funds to kickstart your next project, or maybe just get a loan at the bank. Alana Stott, author of How to Ask for Money, joins us here on the Shift with all the details of exactly that. It could just be borrowing money from friends. This is what you need to know, and this is what you need to be prepared for. Is an exploding rocket a success for SpaceX? Andrew C. Ferreira, the space expert with the Vancouver Science Center, breaks down what really happened for us, whether it was good. And by the way, did you know what blew up the launch pad? That's a thing. And are you okay with bachelor parties? Quite possibly one of the most epic invites, or at least responses, RSVPs of all time. What about complaining babies on a plane? Nah, babies are cool. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Money. We like to talk about money. You hate it. Why is it that talking about money is the most awkward of the things? Like we as people, we will talk about personal things, too much information, health things, about our bodies, about things going on in our lives before we'll talk about money. I got to tell you, the last thing anybody needs is to hear some sort of gross body toenail thing that at dinner, we won't talk about money. And that's where we are trying to lead here on the shift and trying to get into something new and just happened upon a, a new friend of the shift. Alana Stott uh, has a new book, How to Ask for Money. And what an amazing opportunity to just get in conversation about money. Now, we are not only with Alana at the moment, we have Harley here, who is just a we of the, God, I wish this wasn't radio, sweetest face little baby. Holy cow. Um, is, is Harley as, as good as she is cute for behaved? She's a very good girl, yeah. She's awesome. Wow. She's so sweet. <laughs> it's so good. Um, thanks for being here. Uh, congratulations on the book. Must feel fantastic to get it out and, and have the world be able to see it now. Yeah, it's awesome. It's actually been, I, I was just thinking it's almost two year work in progress. So it, it's really excited for it to finally be out there and, and for people to start to start to hopefully, well, it comes out in, in May, so it's pre-order now, but yeah, yeah, starting to tell the story of it now. Yeah, you're a two year overnight success, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Takes forever. Um, okay, so let's get started with your background. Let's talk about that. Obviously, you write, you, uh, money is your jam. This is uh, you've created this method, um, which is really great, called Maps. So let let's talk about um, the background. Why why money for you? What is that the why is that the stand that you're in today? So um, when I tell people I'm motivated by money, they they'll automatically think um, you know Kanye West Gold Digger or Scrooge McDuck blowing coins out of his beak or something. But um, <laughs> when I was a little girl, like really probably eight years old, I done my first sponsored famine and I think that's when I connected the money and helping people and it was a it was the the realization I think even back then that to help people funding is required so I've always been of the the, the two motivations helping people and money and one kind of can't go without the other so um I realized I would have to learn really quickly how to 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 raise raise money so fundraising was the first thing that I had I done as a child and then I started working when I was 11 and then just happened to be that a lot of the work that I got into were, was based around the, the financial world in some way shape or form and I don't just mean you know I got a job as an accountant or a bank manager I was um, a debt collector was one of my first 
money management jobs. Um, and then the fundraising was more after I met my husband, we we went deeper into fundraising and we went into higher um, higher campaigns that were going to help more people. And I realized that there was there were specific ways that people do and don't ask for money and things that worked and things that didn't work. So it was really just probably 20, 30 years of asking for money in different ways and learning the right ways and wrong ways. So when I hear you talk about asking for money, now this is fundraising and business and all those different things. This this really does translate these skills into our everyday lives, right? Sometimes you have to go to a family member, talk about money, ask for money, ask for help. Maybe uh, mom and dad are getting older and now we've got to move them. It's going to cost us some money. So you got to go to the brothers and sisters and talk about money. Um, there's also, I hear this piece of people will also ask us for money. Mm -hmm. And when we learn how to ask for money, that can allow us some space to respond in where we give our money. There are all these things sort of dancing together. Yeah, so the book really goes into, it begins with motivation and what is motivating you. And what I wanted to teach people there was, it's important to obviously know your own motivations, but to know the people around you's motivations. And that can be your work colleagues, but it can also be your family and friends and know what it is that's that's motivating them. So when it comes to either asking for money or being asked for money, it makes that transaction a little bit easier. And, and really um, what it comes down to is so many times, I mean, I've been asked for money and so many times I've actually asked for money and, you can see how things are done and how things shouldn't be done. And, and the kind of, I, I kind of chapterized that through. So you're absolutely right. What you're saying that how to ask for money is really how to ask for anything. It's just, I specifically speak about money, but it's about putting yourself into, you know, it's, it's a mixture of empathy um, putting yourself in other people's positions, knowing what you're asking for, why you're asking for it. And it just brings all these things together. So um I really do speak about motivation, fears, and there's a big chapter in how not to ask for money. And I think that is just as important as how to ask for money. Yeah. Why is it, why is it, you said fears, why, why are we so stuck on the fear of money? I mean, I, I can, and I've shared here on the shift before that I've been a business owner for more than 20 years. I've owned multiple businesses. I've lost businesses. We've closed businesses. We've opened businesses. We launched things. Um, and yet it still took me, well, 20, yeah, well, 20 plus, 30 years, 30 years to be able to sit down with my finances and have it on a sheet in front of me. And it took me every single week. Now, that tactic doesn't work for a lot of people because there's risk and all that stuff involved. But it took me being so attentive to look at it every week, good, bad, or ugly, just to know where I was today because my nature was, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And so I wouldn't know where I was going. And that's me personally. And so if I'm, that's just me going through my own struggle with it. Now I'm clear on it. It's a whole new world. At the same time, we generally don't, if we don't want to talk to ourselves about it, why would we want to talk to other people? Yeah. So the fear side of it that I, I, I really go deep into is, and I, I do go into what fear is and why we have it and, you know, the different types of fear. But really, to me, fear is just the unknown. We're just, you know, whether it's the monster under the bed as a kid or it's that letter that, that you know, you've got from your bank and you don't know what you want to read. It's just the fear of the unknown. So to be able to make something less fearful, just make it a known 
And how I would do that with, with any ask is to learn everything you can about either the person that you're asking, what it is you're asking for, why it is you're asking. It's this buildup of knowledge that makes when you're pitching to someone. I mean, we've all seen the kind of TV shows where... Yes, the um, you know, shark oh, she's so cute. Oh my god! <laughs> you know, dragons den, etc. They go in, and when they know when they don't have the numbers, mm-hmm. it's like you cringe. You're like, you should know these things inside out. Um, and yeah, some people are over exaggerated about it. Me personally, I know my bank balance to the penny. I know what my finances are. I know everything about yeah. it. If you were to ask my husband, he probably couldn't tell you who we bank with, let alone what the balance is. So <laughs> <laughs> that's probably pretty true for many people. <laughs> yeah. So it's the yin, yin and the yang of that um, for us. But what I try and show with the book is that it's it's literally, if I couldn't say it in any other way, it's just knowledge. And when I talk about fundraising in itself, it's about whether it's fundraising for investment, for your business, for a good cause, whatever it might be, you have to treat that fundraising itself as a business, as its own little entity. Um, and having that, that some people have a specific person who does it for them, but again, you're leaving it in their hands. Um, so again, a huge part of it with the, with the MAPS formula, it really is about mindset accountability planning and strategy so the accountability portion there comes into that of of you know taking account for what what it is that you're doing and and actually when when i was a debt collector there used to be as you were speaking about there a, a syndrome the ostrich syndrome and it was just the burying your head in the sand thing and mm-hmm. hoping that it'll all kind of go away um but my job as a debt collector i started in debt collecting when i was 19 and you know, there were some really unscrupulous people there like doing not so great things when it came to collecting money. And generally it was men and they would be more aggressive. And, you know, I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to behave like that. So my tactic was different. I would go in and I would learn about the person and learn what it is that they're struggling with, what their problems are, do budget planning with them. And I would speak to them. And they just became very close to me. And I became one of the number one debt collectors in the region. And people would pay me. I never got physical. I never got aggressive. I never got anything like that. But I was there to help them. And that's what I wanted to do. That's interesting. Um, You said knowledge. And in my work about the mindfulness of of knowledge and how we use it in language, um, and I think you really touched on it, you, knowledge, knowledge is useless, right? Uh, knowledge is nothing. It's a memory until we share it. Yeah. But when we can take knowledge and we start to share it with other people and offer it to people, like when we just store it in our brains, it's nothing. It's a little bit of electricity. You can't even cut open your own head and find the card that says, here's the smart things I know. Like you can't even, you can't even do that. But when you create it and you declare it and you share it and you offer it to people, it's always more of an invitation than anything else than a righteousness piece. It, it does start to change everything around you. Is So when, when you talk about pitches on Dragon's Den and all those shows, you got to know the number. If it's how much do I make per item of this if I sell it? If it's $1.17, you need to know it's not $1.16. Yeah. So when you can answer those questions and provide that knowledge, is that where things really start to change? Because that starts to kick in confidence, starts to kick in all kinds of things, intellect. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if you if you think about the, the person that's that's there in front of you and you want to tell them that you're the person they want to work with, whether it is for, you know, for charitable efforts or for business, 
and you don't know the answer to what you're asking for how can they trust that that you that you're the person they want to work with um to to give them that confidence that you know what you're talking about that's that's everything um so i would say that yes having the knowledge but yes sharing the knowledge as well and it's exactly why i wrote this book because people would ask me all the time how i manage to raise the funds that i do um and then i would ask how they do it and i would say okay i know exactly where you're going wrong here let me help you and then you know i spoke to one particular business colleague and he said it came to him needing to ask for this cash and he said Alan, i'm absolutely terrified i said why I said, do you know what you want? Do you know why you want it? Do you know what it's going to do? Do you, do you have all these answers? And he was like, well, yeah, kind of. And I was like, well, I suggest that's probably what you need to do first is find, you know, really, really know what you're you're asking for. So when you walk in that room, first of all, they have the confidence in you, but you've got the confidence as well. As you know about, well, the first stage of MAPS is mindset. So if you're going in there kind of all flustered and lacking in this this information and nervous about being caught out about maybe not telling so much truth whatever it might be it's it's going to start the failure uh that's fantastic i mean i always sort of say specifics are where you can find the truth and vagueness is where you find the lies right mm -hmm. so if someone's going in to have that conversation it, it only makes sense to do that if i call you alana and i'm like hey cousin Steve is, you know, needs a new computer for college. How about you and I kick in to do that? The first question is going to be, how much is a computer? Yeah. Right. And so if I don't, well, I don't know, like thousand bucks. Okay. Well you find out how much the computer is and then I will let you know if I'm okay with it. That's, that's a normal everyday conversation. And that's what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think I've dealt with, when I've been approached to help with fundraising challenges and somebody will say, oh, you know, we need, uh, we need to raise a million dollars. And I'll say, great. What's, what do we need to raise that for? Is that all going to charity? Well, no, we need about 750 of that just to do the challenge. Okay. So you're giving 250 to charity. So what's the 750 going to cost? Oh, well, um, you know, lights, accommodation, things like that. Right. Okay. So that doesn't quite marry up then. So you need to break that down for me a little bit more. And then when they break it down, and I think if they tried to tell me maybe falsehoods or something that's when it comes out when you're really pushing and the right investor or donor is going to push they're always going to ask all those questions and if you don't know it or you're not being fully honest or transparent they're going to find you out wasn't well, that interesting because you're that's the frame right you're fundraising collecting money but they're not fundraising they're in the business of uh, risk assessment yeah so they're not in the same business as you. So you can't, you have to be ready to answer the questions for their business. Yeah. So a, a lot, the, one of the biggest mistakes I ever see in specifically um, charitable fundraising, but it happens in investment as well, is you're asking for something that you truly believe in. So whether it's your business or the, you know, you're fighting cancer, whatever it might be, you're really, really believing in this and you just expect that they're going to believe this as well. But what they really want to know is how is this going to benefit me? Is it going to benefit me through a tax rebate? Is it going to benefit me through, is this business going to make lots of money? Like, how is it going to do that? So huge amount of times I see people really harping on about the cause. And of course, the cause is important to you, but it isn't important to them. Very rarely is it is that going to be their main deciding factor on whether they give you the money or not. So when often you hear somebody saying, well, do you not care about this? And it's that's almost insulting to the person because it's like yes i do but i also care about my money so I don't mm -hmm. know where it's going and what's going to happen with it 
Yeah, when you take the perspective of if I give you this money and you take care of it and we return it or whatever the return is, that allows me to give this money to that person and do more. Don't uh, diminish my ability to do what I do. And that's quite fascinating. Okay, maps. Tell me about maps. We've got mindset for the first one. Yeah, so the mindset is it, it's, it really, the whole chapter goes into preparing the mind for the actual presentation that you're going to do. But it really does, I guess, transcend into any area of your or life that you're preparing to go into. So it, it talks about how to um, get the right amount of sleep, get the right uh, type of, as you're entering the room, you want to be in the right mind frames, whether it's music, et cetera, they use to do that. I really do like a seven day build up as well. So things like eliminating caffeine and alcohol, eating the right diets, you know, avoiding any sort of jittery diets that are going to get you your cortisol levels spiking um, get the right amount of sleep um, screen time as well. That's a, a huge distraction for people. So I, I, I'll, I'll go quite deep into that. So um, the mindset section is really about being fully prepared in your own mind and body before you, before you go in and, um, and then accountability. So A for maps is, um, you know, we can send other people into the room or we can ask other people to do things for us. But it's, it's from what I say is the buck always stops with me. So if this pitch fails, if we go wrong, I'll, I'll be taking full blame for it. So um, I think really believing and knowing your own accountability and knowing what you're responsible for. And even if you're delegating those responsibilities, if it's your pitch and it's your product, make sure you know who you're delegating it to and why you're delegating it. Um, and then the planning section, which is really like, the biggest part of it is going into what I would say is the, the the who, what, where, why, when, you know, and knowing that for each section. So for you, for your product, for your audience, for the donors, um, really knowing all the all the five W's. Um, and then the strategy about how you're going to approach it, you know, the the sales plan, the what conversation you're going to have, taking everything else you've learned and putting it into that. So really walking through. So the reason I kind of formulated the maps is just it's that roadmap and to get into to the, the the success of the pitch it's fascinating stuff and you can really hear how this translates i mean this is a conversation about business sometimes when we get emotionally attached to things change the topic change the clarity so for everyone who might be struggling in their own money listening to this from a business perspective could provide a little bit of clarity um and what alana brings to the table um here uh in all of this um do you kind of wish you were still a debt collector though? <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a really fun job. <laughs> Do you know, it was, it was definitely that it was me working my way through various different things. So I think at that point I'd been a door to door salesperson. So I was living in Scotland at the time. And if you've ever, well, you're from Canada. So knocking on doors in the middle of December at like 8, 9 PM at night, trying to sell mm -hmm. windows, doors, restaurants, cards, whatever. It wasn't fun. So actually the debt collector was the step up from that. Mm. And then um, after that, I became a bank manager. And yeah, it was at that point that I was like, man, this is quite boring. Like, I missed that. But, you know, since then, I've run a security company and, and worked in various different areas. So um, my life's never boring for sure. Oh, this is fascinating. Uh, Harley is beautiful and mm -hmm. so well behaved and so good. And she's so sweet. Um, thank you for this. If you want to learn more about Alana, yeah. I'm going to post some links up for everyone to see the public website um, of what you've got out there. Uh, on our shiftheads.ca Facebook group so everyone can see that. The book is out next month. Pre-order it now. It's How to Ask for Money. 
it's centered on business, but really when you're giving money to family members, asking for help from family members, or just looking for some contribution to make things work, these are skills that translate far more uh, beyond money. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time here today and sharing this insight. It's really cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Harley says thank you too. <laughs> ah, I love her. She just want to squeeze her cheeks. She's so cute. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. Andrew Ferreira is weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. Now, I'm sorry to say all those things, Andrew, because I know you are a diehard Canucks fan. Does it sting a little bit when we celebrate Edmonton? <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it doesn't sting when you were born, raised, and will likely die miserable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you you get born into it. You just, you accept that nothing good will ever happen to you. You learn to live with it, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, you know, I, I take the, the, the vain hope that we have every season that, oh, maybe this seventh round pick will turn into something. Uh, <laughs> and then we trade the seventh round pick and then the seventh round pick becomes something. Right. Um, Absolutely. Well, there you just, go. It's, it's, it's the good. Canuck way of doing things. The uh, text idiotic. Um, there and, is a text that comes in that says Vancouver Canucks hopefully next year can push the playoffs and get the Stanley Cup. I want to see some fist fights and sweat. Let's go Canucks. Yeah, that's Demi not going to happen. Demi doesn't understand why there's so Look, much Look, hey, you know what? Hey, you know what? If if the Canucks make the playoffs, uh, I'll see it as it, it's, it'll be a supremely pyrrhic victory uh, mm. because it, it's just going to breed another season of false hope and expectations that will never be met. Just like all 53 uh, years of this franchise. the uh, This moment of positivity brought to you by science. Okay, Andrew, let's Canucks move on to something. It's natural. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, uh, the super heavy X, uh, SpaceX rocket was supposed to take off a few days ago, finally did a couple of days ago, went into the air, and since we're on the... Um, since we're all on the metaphor of, of hockey, flew like a Canuck, got off the ground and then imploded. So yeah, tell it, me what happened. Yeah, it, you know, just like, well, I shouldn't say this because the last few Canuck seasons have been outright disastrous from the start. Um, but it, and here's, you know, I was always, and Elon Musk, you know, I always like to bring up Elon because who doesn't like to bring up Elon? Um, I defer to away from some of his other insane things. Um but even he himself, and Elon is always uh, something of, uh, of of an insane optimist when it comes to these things, was like, at best, this is a 50-50, it'll launch or blow up on the pad. Um, and he won the coin flip. It launched, it got up to about 39 kilometers um, before um, it essentially lost control. It was supposed to separate into a, like, its, its bottom stage was supposed to detach, uh, and its second stage was supposed to fire its rockets. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, and then what happened was uh, SpaceX launch control transmitted the self-destruct uh, command uh, oh, to the okay. rocket. Um, okay. So they 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 blew it up. Um, and this was out of an abundance of caution because the threshold for risk, essentially, one of the things that safety officers look at when they're thinking about whether or not to terminate a flight uh, for SpaceX and I guess the uh, the FA uh, the 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 aviation FAA. Um, their their kind of boundary for this was if the risk of hitting somebody on the ground with any debris uh, exceeded the probability of one in 30 million, they would terminate the flight. 
Um, And so that they crossed that threshold. And so after it lost control and began to tumble, they called it, right? They said, all right, we've seen everything we need to see. The rocket won't be getting to space anyway. Uh, You know, best thing we can do now is blow it up before it, you know, has a chance to tumble somewhere where it might do any harm. Hmm. Um, So, and this is another thing that is, in my opinion, a rousing success. The uh, flight termination system works perfectly. Um, And this is an important part of, of rocket safety, right? You know, in the you know horrible event that there are people on board, and we've had this happen with with the space shuttles before, uh, but in the horrible event that someone is on board, you know, you got to think what's safer, you know, dooming the you know six people or whatever it is who knew the risks, or risking the rocket landing in a populated area. Um, so this in itself is actually a victory that they were able to test the flight termination system, and it worked flawlessly. Hmm. So compare this back to the space shuttle, because when we've talked about, when we know that Mm. most people know the space shuttle, right? Those booster rockets were on the outside of that big tank. They fell off. It is a very similar process, if I understand what they're doing today with this big rocket, except it's just more like its butt falls off. It's very similar? Yeah, so as it reaches altitude at about 30 kilometers, its butt falls off, as you put it. Um, But here's where SpaceX is going to (laughs) go crazy stuff. Um, and mind you, we all called SpaceX crazy a decade ago when they said they could mass produce rockets that landed themselves. Uh, and look at them now. Um, but that bottom segment, the the first stage with like the 39 engines or whatever it is, it's ludicrous, um, is actually supposed to be able to land again. Oh, as well. Really? Uh, for this first test, it wasn't. Uh, they don't have the infrastructure or anything ready for that. Uh, but I do believe that the eventual goal is to have that land somewhere else. Um, I'm not sure if that has changed over the past couple of years, but the original plan was to have it be entirely reusable. Hmm. Um, but, you know, that's neither here, there, here nor there. The original plan for this test flight um, was to have it ditched somewhere in the Atlantic. Um, and so, you know, we'll never get to see how well that actually works as well. Uh, we won't even get to see until the next test flight whether or not the bolts that hold the two halves of the spacecraft together uh, would have fired properly. Um, there's, you know, tens of thousands, literally, of things that have to go right uh, in any one rocket launch. And, you know, if any one of those fails, it has the potential to scuttle the entire process. Um, oh. They're still not sure as to what happened, why they needed to terminate the flight system. Um, if you're watching the stream, you might have seen that some of the actual individual engines encountered faults and shut off shortly after takeoff. Yeah. Um, those but, are the little ones that the, the kind of poke, puking out the bottom, those ones? Yeah, yeah, those are the ones. So you probably saw on some of the screenshots there was, you know, a handful of engines that had kind of shut off. Um, yeah, they flickered and, a little bit. They were kind of like a bad lighter. Yeah, they flared out, and that was it. Um, I'm willing to bet that that wasn't a huge problem. Uh, I'm willing to bet that in the same way that like a 747 is able to fly with only half its engines, um, you know, Starship is able to fly with a few of its engines knocked out. Um, I think the big problem was uh, some kind of computerization or physical failure on the system that detached the rockets. Mm. Um, Because the second stage never turned on. Uh, We'll never know exactly, you know, whether that was ever going to be able to fly. Uh, but SpaceX is still in the early days of, you know, collecting data and, you know, frankly, you know, trying to collect debris. Um, and one thing that uh, you may have heard about as well is that they completely underestimated how powerful this thing is, which is hilarious to me. Um, mm. You built it. You should know how ludicrous this thing is. It was literally the most powerful rocket ever built uh, and launched. Um, it obliterated the launch pad. It was awesome. Yeah, I so, saw those pictures. 
Yeah. The launch yeah, so, pad has to be rebuilt, and that'll take a couple of months. Yeah, like it literally blasted apart the launch pad to a point where they're like, hey, by the way, we need to figure this out because every time we fire the rocket, it's going to blow a hole in the ground and destroy everything. And the thing is, they had already kind of began the work to making, uh, and I think Elon described it as like a um, a water-cooled iron plate, essentially. Um, but uh, for one reason or another, I think probably just the desire to launch it on 420 because that's Elon Musk. Um, they never bothered with it. Um, and so they're going to have to rebuild the launch pad as well as build a new test vehicle. Uh, but this is how SpaceX works. This is how it's always worked. You know, rapid iteration, right? Public rapid iteration. It's not like, uh, you know, government space agencies where, um, you know, a failure is seen as this gigantic blow to confidence and trust in the system, uh, right? With SpaceX, they've essentially encoded failure into their engineering iter iterative process, right? By showcasing failure and rapidly fixing it, they're able to, you know, find new ways to get around things and quite frankly, develop much faster. Um, so I think it's an excellent way forward for development. You know, don't be afraid of showcasing your failure. And that goes for, you know, everything in life. Don't be afraid to screw up. Um, yeah. Cause when you screw up, you'll learn something, right? Um, well, that, that was my thought too, Andrew, was that if, if, if this thing flies and then it's no problem, um, it could be quite problematic because you're like, well, what, where are the, where are the demons? Where are the ghosts hiding? Right. Um, yeah. and then if you don't have a problem, you're not going to pick it apart the same way. If that went up and it was like, perfect, they're like, Hey, perfect. They might've missed something. So this forces them to, to dig through things differently, which I found that fascinating. It's a very expensive strategy though. Oh, it's, it's, it's hilariously expensive. But when you think about the amount of funding that say NASA gets, um, you know, uh, they don't get a lot of money, right? They get fractions of every penny on the U.S., you know, on the U.S. taxpayer dollar, right? Um, if, you were if, you, if you were able to give, you know, NASA, the Canadian Space Agency, the European Space Agency, Japan Space Agency, you know, a blank check, essentially, as private investors are able to give SpaceX, uh, you would likely see a lot of the same because they would suddenly have the leeway to be like, you know what, we'll just launch it and we'll see what happens, right? Mm -hmm. Because that fact of engineering that rapid iteration and being able to see a problem that's not only true for spacex that's true for everyone uh but not everyone has the same amount of you know a financial leash that spacex does um yeah. but they are under a lot of pressure they are supposed to be delivering astronauts to the surface of the moon in a few years um so they they're going to be you know they they actually mentioned uh in one of the pre-flight kind of pressers um uh, Gwen Shotwell, who's the CEO of SpaceX, uh, mentioned that by 2025, they want to be doing something like 100 test flights in that calendar year. Um, you know, one every three days, which is insane to think about. Um, but, you know, back when SpaceX was, you know, trying out its Falcon 9s and they were saying, you know, oh, we want to launch 10 of these a year, you know, one every month in a bit. People are saying, oh, that's crazy. The space shuttle only launched like maybe once a year, maybe, Right. Uh, and they had multiple space shuttles in order to accomplish, uh, you know, rapid, quote unquote, takeoffs. And now, you know, you're seeing Falcon 9 launches every four or five days, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not even news anymore. They're not even worthwhile to look at in, in a sense, right? It's just like, yeah, it'll work, right? They've launched hundreds of these things and only like one or two has ever failed um, on an actual mission. And each time they've been able to do it, they've been able to be like, yep, this is what happened because they have so much data. 
so much like this body of data from this rapid iterative process that they're taking, doing it, failing, learning, and redoing it over and over again. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've always been, you know, extremely like, Haha, yeah, sure, SpaceX, 100 test flights in only two years. <laughs> but if any company can do it, it will be SpaceX. And that's mm-hmm. well, just fair. a fact. So here's a question for you. I mean, they take off. It's expensive. You know, it's uh, hydrocarbons burning. And I was watching this thing go up. And, I'm, you know, if you live down in Florida and you watch these things go every three days, right? But nobody really seems to complain, or am I missing that part? You know, I mean, in today's world of be more responsible and all that stuff, is there, because you watch this stuff, you know, online all the time is why I ask, is there protests to this? Does anybody seem to complain that, that hey, by the way, this is a thing? Oh, immensely. Immensely. Oh, really? Especially SpaceX. Um, because SpaceX is so whatever to the rules in a lot of ways, um, you know, th- where they launched, which is a, a place called Boca Chica, which is right near the border between Texas and Mexico, about as far south in the continental U.S. as you can get. Um, there have been a lot of delays and holdups because of local protest, because of environmental assessments that SpaceX is trying to be like, we don't want you to do them, which, really? like, it's not how this works. Um, because, I mean, you saw what happened with that launch pad, right? It blew up right? The marshland and everything around it is now covered in like flaming concrete, right? Uh, rocket fuel is poison, right? This is, this is a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not good to be anywhere near it. Um, Florida is a different beast though, because <laughs> just because well, you for, can end the sentence right there, just because it's Florida, <laughs> but also because they've got this legacy of, of space flight, right? Like, you know, Cape Canaveral is the space flight place. It's kind of like you see people, um, and I'll use Vancouver as an example because it's where I am. Um, our our metro system, the SkyTrain, um, it can be pretty loud if you're not used to it. Um, and people will move next to it and they'll complain about it and they'll leave. But most people who are here who have always had the SkyTrain on in the background, it doesn't matter. Right? You're just used to it. Um, and that's, I think, a lot of what happens in Florida, Right. Cape Canaveral is where you go to launch rockets. The people who live there know that, right? It's not new or scary or whatever. Um, it's, in fact, it's something they're proud of, right? It is a very big part of their local economy. And having flights from U.S. soil, you know, for the first time since the shuttle era ended in 2011, like, that is both exciting, frankly, uh, and it's a financial boon, right? Tourists will flock back to Cape Canaveral whenever there's even a test launch, Right. They yeah, will oh, it's line the streets. They will fill hotel rooms. They will eat at restaurants. So there's not a whole lot of protesting going on there. But in newer places, like in Boca Chica, Texas, uh, where they don't have the legacy, where it's all brand new, that's where problems uh, can and do pop up. Hmm. It's fascinating. Um, so this is a this is a monster of a rocket. This is, if I understand correctly, the biggest one ever and the most powerful one ever. What's it going to do if there's such a hurry hard to get it going? Well, the big the big immediate goal for Starship um, is to fulfill that delicious, delicious NASA contract uh, for sending our uh, astronauts down to the surface of the moon. Uh, that'll be the first step. Um, of course, the next step um, is being able to use um, in-orbit refueling. Real thing, not science fiction. 
to make uh, Mars missions cheaper, easier to do um, by simply, you know, only loading up the rocket with enough fuel to get to Earth orbit and then fueling it in orbit. You save a lot of money on fuel and you save a lot of precious cargo space, which would otherwise be, you know, put towards fuel uh, for scientific instruments or people eventually. Um, so, of course, the end goal, Elon's always said this, the end goal is Mars. Um, when that will happen, I'm 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 pretty firmly in the post 2050 camp. Um, I, I'm not as optimistic. I think that uh, the dangers of deep space are are really something that we're going to have to learn to, to to deal with, like the cosmic radiation, the isolation, the microgravity, etc. Um, but Mars is the ultimate goal for Starship. Um, whether there will be you know other iterations, heavier versions for you know maybe you know post-2050 exploration of the outer solar system. Probably not, you know, crude at that point, but maybe um, they'll probably need something a little bit bigger and beefier. But I think the most important step is is nailing in orbit refueling. If you can do that, um, you can really, really drop the cost of space flight missions, especially deep space, beyond the orbit of the, of the moon. Um, and you can also, therefore, you know, afford to have way more in the way of scientific equipment. On your, you know, on your spacecraft, uh, you can have much heavier orbiters, much heavier landers, which much more stuff on them, fancier cameras, bigger tools. Um, you know, nailing in-flight, uh, in-orbit refueling would would be a huge game changer, uh, and it would also be expedient in you know helping to make a permanent human, you know, presence uh, on the moon. Uh, and I think that is coming within the next fifteen years for sure. Fifteen years. Yep, by 20, I say by the late 2030s, we'll have a permanent, probably more than one permanent lunar colony. Hmm. Um, I'm willing to bet it'll be, I'm willing to bet it'll be uh, the US and China. Uh, those do, will, you, those are my, uh, my do you watch um, Umbrella Academy? <laughs> I, I don't, but do oh. tell. One of the, I, I know, one of the brothers, about it. one of the brothers was sent to live on the moon and never told why. Um, and then at the very end of the third season, they start to allude at why. Um, but um, anyway, I just kind of imagine him, this gigantic guy um, living on the moon in his little pod all day yeah, by himself. I, I, I genuinely think that, you know, a lot of today's kids, the kids who are in, you know, kindergarten to grade six, uh, they will be the first generation or first crop of people to have an actual chance at living on the moon in some capacity. Um, 20 years. I think it'll wow. be happening in about in 20 years or less. Cool. All right, there he is. It's Weird Science. Andrew C. Ferreira joins us from the West Coast. Still heartbroken about the Canucks, clearly, but very excited about space. Thanks, buddy. Oh, I'm not heartbroken. You get used to it. The numbness <laughs> seeps in after childhood. <laughs> Take care. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? 877-399-9898. That is our phone number for you to let us know your thoughts on these stories. Curious to hear. Uh, are you okay with the bachelor party? Or bachelorette party, of course. Um, I'm very okay with it. I'm going to several this summer. I'm very mm -hmm. excited. Mm -hmm. Very happy times.
Okay. Okay. So what is the, uh, what's the appeal of the bachelorette party for you? Um, I don't know. I think just like celebrating, you know, the person that's going to get married and supporting them and having fun with them in a way where there's no men involved. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's so good. Are you ever going to get married and have one? I don't know. Maybe. It's never been my top priority, but maybe. Some people it is. Yeah. It's like the priority, right? Mm -hmm. Like you need to have the party and make it happen. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. You tell me. Um, I am curious, though. Um, I, like, I am curious what, uh, what you know, how this looks for people because some people don't want to have one, right? I know that um, I didn't really have one when I got married so long ago. I mean, yeah, I feel like group gathering. I, I feel like it's not a huge deal to some people, and then some people plan it to the minute since they were kids. They know they want this huge epic yeah. bachelor bachelorette thing, and then you know that's pressure. If you're in the wedding party and you're planning it, that's a lot of pressure to plan like an amazing one. So I'm not about that. Um, I just like to go to them and not plan them. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I think that um, I think they can get wild though, and mm. I, I'm not a big fan of those. I know that I went to mm. a couple of those where there was, um, you know, people that you know it was, you know, there's got to be strippers and everything else. And then as a DJ for a long time, there was lots of times where I saw, you know, the the groom or bride to be mostly groom because his friends are jerks clearly. But the like this is a dude who's like duct taped to a a dolly like a furniture dolly. Mm -hmm. you know, and wheeled in and dropped in the middle of a dance floor and is so drunk, can barely like sit there and is, you know, peed his pants because they haven't untaped him in forever and they forget about him and leave him there. Like I've seen the end of the, I've seen the end of the night where, you know, there's like a guy on a furniture dolly that people forgot about, <laughs> right? Like I've seen what? it before. Yeah. Like I think it gets pretty ugly pretty quick, you know? Uh, yeah. Those are not the ones that I, I attend. No? Okay. I think girls are less ruthless like that. Like, I don't think girls do those kind of pranks as much. I don't know. I've seen a bunch of girls running around with their, their penis cups and their penis straws and everything yeah, so penis. penis cups, though. We're not, like, tying someone to a dolly and just leaving them on a dance floor. I suppose. Anyway, um, hey, whatever you're into, it's your day. You go celebrate it. Um, that's not for you. I'm saying for everybody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, I know you're going to go do what you want to do anyway. Um, anyway, who, um, how about this story? Uh, this is from Late Night with Seth Meyers, uh, shared on Instagram. This is William Novak of Phoenix, Arizona. A couple weeks ago, he got a group email titled Angelo's Bachelor Party, inviting him to a party in Vermont for a guy he'd never met. That's because the email was meant for a different William Novak. But the address was accidentally misspelled. So while you or I would have written back and said, sorry, wrong address, this guy hit reply all and wrote, count me in. <laughs> and, and the guys organizing the party wrote back and said, you're not the guy we meant to invite, but you sound awesome. Get your ass to Vermont. <laughs> this is the kind of story we need right now. We all, every one of us, 
get a million emails a day and they all suck. Every email in our inbox is asking us to do something we don't want to do, like meet with our supervisor, or pay our bills, or have coffee with Karen so she can get closure. But this guy <laughs> got an email offering him a chance to have an adventure and he took it. Now, Will, Will's a new dad. He can't be throwing his money around on spontaneous trips. And that's why he started a GoFundMe page called Help Me Go to the Bachelor Party of a Stranger. The whole trip was funded in two hours. To make sure Will wasn't a murderer, the guys planning the party asked him to send a photo of himself. And because Will is the coolest guy ever, he sent this picture of him doing karate in second grade. Uh, that's Seth Myers from Instagram. When posting his GoFundMe, Will Novak found out The Bachelor and his wife to be were expecting their first baby, so he quickly updated the page to note that all funds raised beyond 750 that he needed will go towards the baby's needs, including a college fund. The page quickly fundraised over $4,000. He went to the party with the strangers in Vermont, had a great time, and took them like $3,250 as a gift funded by his friends to go to the party. That guy's. So that's cool. <laughs> I love it. Noel from Ontario says, bachelor parties are the most fun, booze and good fun. Thanks, Noel. Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. See, that's all right for bachelor parties. No one's, as far as we know, left on a dolly there. Yeah, that one sounds like a great time, and he sounds like a great time. Mm-hmm. See, he should he should make a business of just like crashing bachelor parties. That's a good idea. See, there you go. Mm-hmm. Make some money. Mm-hmm. Social media mm-hmm. sensation. Okay, here this next. Are you okay with story? Let's start it completely out of context. It's only going to say this one more time, sir. Calm down. I'm calm! That's from Anger Management, Adam Sandler. The other one is the, uh, oh, what it is, uh, it's um, Ben Stiller, and he does the bomb, 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 bomb. He's at the airport, too. Uh, don't do that one. Are you okay with... Busy flights. Crowded flights are tough. Nobody's ever happy in the middle seat. No, never. Like nobody. I don't no. even know why they put it there. No, they should get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Um, a video of a man having a temper tantrum over a crying baby on an airplane going viral uh, over the way he yells at flight attendants and makes a huge scene. The video, entitled uh, Belligerent Passenger Causes Diversion, has racked up hundreds of thousands of views on TikTok, with many people uh, feeling far more sorry for the screaming baby than the man surrounding passengers. The angry man hasn't been identified, but he can be heard through the video becoming more and more mad, swearing more than 20 times as he yells at staff on the plane because of the baby. You know how wrong that is? That is so wrong, because there's nobody on that plane that is more panicked than the parent. That parent is trying forever to calm the baby, quiet the baby. It's not cool to see your baby like that. You know, the mm-hmm. air pressure is hurting those little baby ears, all that stuff. Now, if the parent doesn't care and the kid is all over the place, yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. But get mad at the parent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was on a flight where a, a child, I guess not a baby, a child kicked our seats for like probably two hours straight before we said anything. And when we said something to the dad behind us, the dad was like, oh, I told you so to the kid, like so calm, like didn't even get mad at him. And this kid was kicking, kicking our seat for two hours straight. Did he stop? 
Uh, yes. So there it goes. After so it says something. You know what else people do terribly on an airplane? They think your headrest is their supporting handle when they stand up and move around. Mm. You're mm-hmm. sitting there and they like grab your headrest and reef on it and you're sleeping or whatever. And then they're pulling on it so they can stand up and move. Hate to break it to you, buddy, but someone's sitting in that seat. Drives me nuts. Um, I like to think I'm particularly tolerant on a plane for people. I will just ask them like you did. And most people are pretty good. It's mm-hmm. it's those little things like um, like that, right? Like if you have your table out and a laptop on your thing and someone drops the seat back, you can break the screen. Like it pinches the screen. Mm-hmm. In. Like you've got to be, be respectful. So people yeah. are working. Anyway. This incident comes just after Toronto Blue Jays pitcher Anthony Bass uh, tweeted out his outrage over United Airlines flight attendant claimed that they made his pregnant wife get on her hands and knees and clean up a mess uh, made by the children, incident sparking its own debate of who should be responsible for picking up after untidy passengers. And uh, first of all, pregnant lady, no, never, not a thing. Um, now, kids should should the kids have made the mess and the parents are responsible to help? Yes, with the exception of depending on how pregnant she is. Yeah, but if but if he's there, he, he should be just helping. do it. Yeah. yeah, like you don't have to make your pregnant wife do it. You just do it. Like yeah, I don't know if he was kids. there. Um, oh, I don't know if he was there, there for that one, but um, uh. but he uh, I don't know for sure. I'm assuming he wasn't based on his outrage. Um, I'm sure he would have shared his outrage on the plane. But I absolutely you help clean up. I mean, mm. yes, there were people who will come in vacuum, but I mean, if you've got goldfish crackers all over the thing, you can help clean that stuff up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you help. Absolutely. I think that's a... Now, I'm biased. I worked in aviation and, and around an airline, and, and I know how hard people work to make sure everyone gets where they're going, and we do not... under. I can tell you this. You do not understand, you as Canadians, how much work it takes and how many people are working so hard to help you get there on time, and they work their butt off to do it, and we don't know, from bag people to cleaning people to those flight attendants to the gate people, everybody... And so, yet we just crap all over them when things go wrong. Mm. Trust me, they don't want things to go wrong either. So anyway, yes, help clean up, will you? Although, let's Mm. not make a, a, a pregnant mom do it. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 